Welcome to Uninhibited, a podcast with the mission to discuss taboo, multicultural, multigenerational, and multilayered topics that matter to women. My name is Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki. I am an Ivy League-trained OBGYN practicing medicine in rural America. I am married and raising three dynamic African-American boys. I am a mother, a career professional, a part of Generation X, and so much more. I bring to the table a true desire for social justice that informs my opinions, and my hope is that this podcast will open conversations, question beliefs, and be transformative. Welcome to Uninhibited. I'm your host, Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki, and today I am blessed to have with us um, a friend of mine, Erica Turnipseed. She is a writer and educator and um, lives in the D.C. area. I reached out to her recently in the midst of this year. There's been a lot of stories, and PR did a feature on uh, black maternal mortality, which in layman's terms just basically means that as black women, we are experiencing an undue burden of death and uh, difficulties and in just the, the what should be one of nature's most simple um, proceedings, just giving birth. Uh, a lot of us are having near-death experiences, and, and unfortunately, some of us have actually passed away uh, in the process of delivering. And um, it's come to the fore for a lot of different reasons, no small part to the fact that there have been large celebrities like Beyonce and Serena Williams that have come forward and said that they too almost died in childbirth and had difficulties. And it's definitely caused us to take a second look at um, what's going on during the childbirth process, during um, what we call the antepartum, kind of while you're pregnant, uh, during the delivery, and even afterward that's accounting for um, these outcomes that we're experiencing. And so um, I reached out to Erica because I knew that she had an important story to share. And so I just wanted to welcome her to Uninhibited. Thank you, Makunda. I'm happy to be here and happy to share my story. Okay. We've obviously talked a little bit about um, everything. Tell me a little bit about... um, you know, your pregnancy and also your thoughts around it um, and and the care that you were getting. Sure. So my first pregnancy was in 2003. And, you know, I had been with uh, my OBGYN for several years at that point. I was very comfortable with her, uh, with the care that I was receiving from her and from her office. And, you know, things had been moving along well. I was um, in my second trimester. I hadn't gained too much weight. I was, you know, all of my numbers looked good. At the time, I was about 32 years old, so I was not advanced maternal age, and I was probably in the best uh, physical shape I had been in um, in my adult life because I had been working out with a trainer, so I was feeling feeling good about myself and about my health. And when I 
again, was in my second trimester, you know, my, my OBGYN went on vacation, which is fine. And she explained that, uh, you know, she knew that I had an upcoming check-in appointment with her, um, but that she wouldn't be there for it. I would see her uh, colleague in her absence. So, you know, I, when I did come in for that particular appointment, which at that time I was about 22 and a half or 23 weeks, maybe 22 and a half weeks. Um, I didn't see her. I actually saw, um, her nurse, the, the doctor who was standing in for her did not see the need to see me, um, physically. And at that time I had noted to the nurse, a couple of things that I found a little bit, uh, noteworthy, maybe a bit concerning, you know, I'd gained a few pounds between the, you know, my last appointment and that one, which was atypical for the, the weight progression that I had been experiencing at that point. Um, and you know, was, uh, when she took my blood pressure, it was elevated again, relative to what it had been. Um, it was not officially high blood pressure, but it was quite a bit higher than what it had been. You know, I was, I was running not even 120 over 80. I was sort of in the one teens um, prior to that. And then when I saw her uh, that particular time, it was like 130 over maybe 90 or 90 something. So um, those things did raise a bit of a, of, of a flag for me. And I did want to talk to the doctor. The nurse went away. She said that she would communicate my concern to him. And uh, he did not return. She returned and she said that, you know, he said it was okay and that I could, you know, leave. And so I did. Um, you know, it was in my mind, but I had been assured that you know, it was okay. And I never having had a pregnancy before, I didn't have anything to fall back on. I just, you know, went with what I was told that it was, you know, within the realm of normalcy and that I should just, you know, keep focusing on, on eating well and doing all the things I was supposed to do. So that's what I did. Um, and let me just uh, ask in, when you'd visited your doctor in the past, was it typical that you would only be seen by a nurse or would you always see your doctor? I would always see my doctor. So this was a, a, an atypical experience that I didn't see a doctor at all um, for, you know. And I would agree with that because, I mean, within my practice, you're either seeing the doctor or the nurse practitioner. Um, but to to just see kind of the person who puts you in the room, that seems like that would be a little bit atypical and and again not not to put any type of onus on you but to try to help listeners understand how do you make demands if you feel that you're not being heard because you know your body and I tell my patients this all the time I have thousands of patients, but there's only one Erica turnip seed. And so you know your body better than I do. And, you know, I know medicine, but I, you know, your body, you, you should know it better than anyone else. And so, I, you know, just as an aside, did, do you, I, I mean, I totally get that 
because they said everything was okay, you kind of push back some of the thoughts that you were thinking, hmm, this is a little bit odd. I've gained maybe three, four pounds, and I don't usually gain that much in between visits, and my blood pressure is a little bit higher, but they said it's okay. Right. I, you know, I wasn't feeling great about what had happened. Um, I had Mm -hmm. been in the office for a very long period of time. They were running behind. So I'd been there, you know, two hours or so at that point. Um, So when I left. And that's probably, honestly, as a physician, that's probably what ended up happening is that he was behind too he got behind. And so things happened that shouldn't have happened because there's not really, I mean, outside of like just really some small things like uh, maybe just like a blood sugar check or just come in quick and get your blood pressure done. There's some small, what are called nurse only visits where you don't have to see a doctor, but um, a prenatal visit in general, I mean, that's usually, so now that you're giving us that background, most likely I can just tell you being a busy practitioner myself, the doctor got behind. Maybe they had a delivery in the middle of the day. Maybe it just was the fact that your your primary doctor was on vacation, but nobody kind of told him that they were going to put all of her patients on top of his patients. Certainly possible. I, I don't really know all the specifics. I do know yeah, that, um, you know, my, my OBGYN was a very high touch kind of personality. And, you know, we had a relationship going back several years. I had brought all kinds of friends and, and family of friends to her practice because, mm-hmm. you know, I had such uh, high praises for her and for her bedside manner. So it was, it was definitely a, a great departure, right? Um, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily expect to have the same kind of interaction with the person who was, uh, you know, taking her, her, her patients as um, I did with her. But at the same time, I was surprised that I didn't see anyone and that even when I requested to see him, that I still didn't see him. Um, and I did leave her office thinking to myself that when she returns, I will be sure to let her know what happened. I mean, I, 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 was, I, I knew there was something wrong with that interaction and I didn't think that she would be happy with how that went. But at the same time, I didn't think that I was, um, you know, kind of seeing the onset of something more serious, um, which, you know, we'll talk about in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, you leave the appointment and then kind of uh, what transpires? Well, um, you know, within, this was uh, early December at this point, Within the week, there was a snowstorm. There were all kinds of things going on. Um, And I was working full-time at at the time. I was at a meeting um, for work and started to feel unwell. So this was about a week or eight or nine days after that appointment. It certainly was not even a full week and a half after that appointment um, that I started to feel unwell. And so much so that I said, I, I think I need to leave and go home. And, uh, you know, someone hailed me a, a taxi. I was working and living in New York City at the time. I got into the taxi with the thought that I was going to go home. But 
within a couple of blocks of the trip, I started to, to feel pain, actual pain, which scared me. And uh, so much so that I was moaning in the back of the taxi cab. Um, I was blessed to have a woman as a, as a taxi driver. That was my first experience in my entire life of growing up in New York City, that I had a woman taxi cab driver, and she was really concerned about me. And she said, do you need to go to the hospital, miss? And I said, you know, I think I do. And um, I, you know, got on my cell phone and called my doctor, my doctor's office. Um, she was in surgery at the time. They said, you know, well, you could go home and just she'll call you as soon as um, she gets out of surgery. And I think I said, OK, but <laughs> I was moaning. I was in pain. Um, but my thought was, no, I'm going to go straight to the to the uh, emergency room. And I did. So it, it escalated, you know, pretty quickly in terms of the intensity of the pain. Um, I, I think from the beginning of that phone call to, you know, right after the phone call, it had escalated even more so. I got to the um, emergency room in maybe a half hour, 40 minutes. You know, uh, this is midday traffic in, in New York City. Um, and you know, when I got there, I was writhing in pain. I was in a great deal of pain. My doctor still was in um, what was a complicated uh, delivery, um, you know, that she was engaged in. So I was seen by the emergency room doctors in the labor, on the labor and delivery floor. And they really couldn't figure out what was going on with me. So they couldn't give me any pain medication because they didn't know what was causing the pain. They did know, however, that my blood pressure was very high. And so, you know, they figured that I was experiencing preeclampsia, but couldn't account for all the other pain that I was experiencing because preeclampsia, my understanding at the time was that it, it shouldn't cause me as much physical discomfort as I was clearly in. Um, it can. And I mean, the, you know, a lot of what you're experiencing is is rare. So I can, and you know, um, you're in New York. Um, you're uh, at a academic facility, right? And yes. um, and and our job is not to name names because this is not a um, this is not a state problem. This is not a particular hospital problem. This is a national problem of. Yes. Uh, black women's mortality in pregnancy. So this is uh, that's that's not our end goal here is to name names because that's not really the point. But um, a lot of what's going on with you is rare. Um, having preeclampsia before before 24 weeks is a very rare condition, um, and so we learn about it in textbooks. I myself have practiced for over 20 years, and thankfully. I've only seen it once because it's not um, it, it's a very difficult um, diagnosis to make and right. it's difficult to treat and the outcomes are, are are not good, especially not for the baby because of the severe prematurity. So you're you're experiencing the pain and the pain. I mean, preeclampsia can cause your liver capsule, your liver to swell. It can cause your brain to swell. Um, it can cause kidney swelling. It, it causes this uh, a mass amount of uh, fluid retention. Um, 
and so one of the signs we look for is not producing urine um, because you're retaining all of this fluid. So you can experience pain with preeclampsia because it's causing swelling in all of these organs. Okay. Well, I certainly was experiencing a great deal of pain. The, the um, doctors who were attending to me certainly seemed concerned. They also seemed completely out of their element. So I, I definitely hear what you're saying in terms of their lack of experience with seeing this kind of, uh, you know, medical presentation at this point in, the, in my pregnancy, because I was mm-hmm. at that point, you know, just a couple of days shy of 24 weeks. Um, my doctor came out of surgery and immediately came down to see me. And, you know, she ordered a, a few additional tests. Um, she was really, really concerned. Um, you know, things were moving really quickly. And within about 15 or so minutes of her arrival, she said, okay, she's got HELP syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, of course, we know it, it does. It is a syndrome that affects your blood platelets and your liver enzymes. And, um, you know, so she she could tell that that was what was going on. And so once I got that diagnosis um, conclusively, you know, through the test that the testing that she had done, um, they started to treat me for it. Um, pain management, as well as, you know, just whatever series of things you might do to try to mitigate the effects of the preeclampsia um, and, and the, the HELP syndrome. Um, so, you know, I was in that space for, a few hours, I was admitted to the hospital, and the plan at that time was to have me um, on strict hospital bed rest, um, taking the medications that you need to take both to mature the baby's lungs and also to keep me from uh, going into labor or from having an escalation in my symptoms, right? So that was kind of the plan that was put together very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just in a flash, I went from all the normal things that you think when you're <clears throat> at that point in your pregnancy, you know, you're, I, I did know that I was having a girl. I was, you know, just kind of thinking about names. My, um, we were planning for her arrival. We would rib each other, you know, which college is she going to go to and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, mm-hmm. To, suddenly thinking about, okay, wow, you know, she might not make it because I might not make it. And so they're trying to keep me alive to keep her alive. My, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my uh, OBGYN made it really clear to me that, you know, Erica, if we can't keep you alive, she can't, she won't live. So my first responsibility is to, is to, is to your health, um, recognizing that you're, as best we can preserve your health, that will increase her chances of, of living. And that was just really such a, a shock on every level um, to, to realize that I was dealing with that set of issues at that point in my pregnancy. Of course. I mean, yeah, because as you said, like every pregnancy, basically, as soon as almost we those lines turn positive, we make plans and none of our plans include, um, you know, these types of nightmares. Our our plans are always of the healthy child, of the 
the joyous moments, the first step, the first foods, who's he, who's the baby going to look like mom or dad. But Mm -hmm. in, in, in a short period of time from the time you left your business meeting to the time when your doctor was finally able to break away from um, surgery and make a conclusive diagnosis, your whole world changed. It absolutely flipped. Just it, right. It just in a matter of hours. hours. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, they did begin that course of management, you know, f- f- uh, for my case at that point. Um, it was the evening. I was asleep. I was groggy from the various medications that I was on as well. And I recall being awakened in the middle of the night with my OBGYN looking at me uh, saying, you know, Erica, we're going to have to deliver you. And I couldn't even figure out what she was saying to me for a second. Um, And she she repeated it. And she said, you know, your numbers are continuing to trend um, in the wrong direction. And at this point, we have to deliver you to preserve your life. So now I was, I was facing the immediate issue of my own mortality. Yes. You know, yes. I was being asked questions like, you know, my religious affiliation and, you know, what I wanted to have happen with, um, with my daughter. Should she be, you know, how should, should she be baptized and, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, I, um, had to call my, my parents, in fact, Kevin, my, um, my husband had to call them and tell them what was going on. And then, you know, they rushed to the city, um, to be there as well, because we recognized that everyone's life was in jeopardy. Um, you know, mine and, uh, our daughters at that time. So, you know, I did go into surgery and, uh, that and this is everything she's doing is, is uh, you know, from what you've told me is 100% accurate because mm-hmm. there does come a point because just um, not to get into the nitty gritty of the medical part of it, but when you lose your platelets, which is part of this disease, you lose the ability to clot. Right. And then once you lose the ability to clot, then how can we do surgery on someone who can't clot? They're going to bleed to death. And so it's, it's a race against time. So they most likely were trying to give you steroids, trying to do different things to increase your platelets, to buy some time. Um, and then it came to the point where um, your doctor had to have to tell you that those very difficult uh, words to say, basically, that we have to deliver you now in order to save your life. Right. Um, And I did get an infusion of blood platelets um, at some point in the process for that very Mm -hmm. reason. And also, um, you know, I couldn't deliver um, using an epidural, which is common in C-sections. I had to have um, general anesthesia because of the issue of, of, of clotting. The bleeding, yeah. We bleeding. can't stick in right. you into your spine because, again, you can't clot. Right. So now we've stuck you in your spine, and now you're bleeding in your spine. So, right. yeah, for all of those reasons, you then had to be put under general anesthesia in order to have the C-section performed. 
Right. And in the minutes before that happened, um, you know, I was, I was lying on the, on the table in the, in the um, operating room with so many people running around, you know, screaming all kinds of things because they were, this was an emergency C-section. Everyone knew that this was a race against the clock. Um, And, you know, I went under not knowing where I was going to awaken. You know, I was really, really clear on the fact that this could be it for me. Um, And Mm -hmm. the, the numbers that were being called out in the room that sounded just preposterous to me were actually my blood pressure numbers right? Mm-hmm. 220 over 110. I, I recall hearing that. Um, yeah. So it, it, it was really that dire. Yeah. So you, you, at this point you, you go under mm-hmm. and, um, and then obviously there's no memory of that. Y'all, all you're hearing is the confusion and the, the chaos and the OR which happens again, um, we're human and, and something has to be done fast. So there's not really the time for like, can you do this for me? And please, and thank you. It really is like, it, it's everything you've seen in, in all the, the movies and the, right. the TV shows of us rushing, rushing around trying to, to save a life. And at that point, you had that decision and you move forward to have the C-section. Um, so what is your next remembrance after that? Well, you know, right before I went under, I was pe- feeling pretty stressed because of what was going on. I had asked for last rites from, you know, a religious person and he delivered those and that, calmed me down and I, you know, went out. I didn't wake up until, you know, well after the surgery was over. Um, I woke up to seeing my my family, which was wonderful, but not seeing my daughter because I was in the recovery area. Um, I didn't know if she was alive or not. I, I did ask and, and, you know, was shown a, a picture of her at that point. Uh, so thankfully she had lived through the surgery because it was unclear, you know, what state she would be in. Um, I was told that she could live minutes to, to hours. That was what I was told prior to mm-hmm. me going under. Um, so I was thankful to wake up in, in the world that we all know. Um, mm-hmm. I was experiencing some allergic reactions to the blood uh, platelet transfusion. I I guess that's the right word for it. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, they were giving me other medications for that. So I mean, I was really in a very touch and go state. um, So when you woke up, you were in the ICU, right? Well, I woke up in in the recovery area. Um, I hadn't been Mm -hmm. taken to, to ICU yet, but as, as, well, I, I think that's right. I wasn't taken to my ICU room for a while yet. I think they still needed to see that I would wake up and they were, you know, making sure that I, the immediate issues were being addressed because like I said, I was having an allergic reaction. I had broken out into hives and um, because it was an emergency 
surgery, I guess there were any number of additional concerns, right? Because you can't be as meticulous in just the execution of the surgery. Um, So I think they were just trying to make sure that my that I had just been stitched up properly. I just, I don't know. There are all <laughs> kinds of things going on. I can't remember mm-hmm. everything. There was just so much going on, even in, in that quieter time. It was relatively quiet, you know, um, as compared to what was going on at the front end before, I, before the surgery began, but it was still a pretty active situation. So, um, you know, but I, I was moved to um, ICU later on that day. I still had not seen my daughter. Um, We named her Grace. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was pretty anxious about that because I remembered what was told to me minutes to hours. And so with every passing hour, I was just concerned that I would never see her alive. There Um, began to be an urgency in in your mind um, to know how Grace was doing. Yes. Um, and, and, and to know it firsthand, right? Um, you know, when you have this kind of experience, I, I was grateful that I was alive. I was grateful that she was alive at the time. Um, but I felt like my body had failed her. I, I couldn't figure out what exactly was going on. And, you know, I felt like there were any number of people who were trying to attend to me, to me medically, Right. And I appreciated the level of care that I was receiving in that sense. But um, I just had a whole host of things happening to me emotionally um, over and above the fact that my body had just birthed the child prematurely. Right. Um, Yes. So. And I just want to put an interject because. Yes. Something you just said gave me goosebumps because Mm -hmm. you said I felt like my body had failed me. And a lot of the dialogue about this uh, uh, maternal morbidity and mortality amongst African-Americans is placing blame on the African-American female body. Mm-hmm. And I want in, in, in as many ways as possible to remove that, especially in your situation, because we as a community of scientists do not even know the, we, okay, so let me say, we know the cause, uh, like we know what the end results are of preeclampsia and help, but we truly do not know like how to necessarily predict it. And we don't know really what the root cause is. Like we can see what happens. We know that it has to do with endothelial cellular damage, but we don't know why it happens. And so, I know for uh, in a lot of times in counseling, whenever there's um, whenever things don't go according to textbook, I do try to offer that also that there was nothing that you did there. These sometimes things happen and we don't have a reason for it. And um, and I hope that whatever woman that is out there listening to this can understand that, that. Mm-hmm you know, just you really cannot, um, you know, carry that type of blame that your body failed. Um, there's so much that we just don't understand. And so, um, and I just want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart and uh, just wish the, the best, the best is yet to come still. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Uninhibited. You can find more episodes to download at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also continue the conversation at uninhibited.community on Facebook, where you can like us and share. And you can continue chatting on Instagram at uninhibited.podcast. Special shout out to Trap Quilo for the beats.